Today's episode is brought to you by our amazing friends at Pygmonic. On their behalf, I hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone to the Medspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nav, and this is episode number 10 with Dr. Bessel Vanderkolk. Trigger warning. This podcast contains information about sexual assault and violence, which may be triggering to survivors. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Trauma is about heartbreak and gut-wrenching feelings. It's not about thoughts. It really is about your body getting stuck in a state of uh, sensations that are basically intolerable. But I've got some issues that nobody can see And all of these emotions are pouring out of me I did want to discuss like why child abuse, molestation, and domestic violence in particular, why they're so devastating to recover from. The job of the brain of a little child is to know who they are and what effect they have on the world. And if you are exposed to a lot of danger, fear, and threat as a little baby, you, your brain gets developed to like, I cause terrible things to happen. Mm-hmm. And so you get a, a brain that organizes things egocentrically. And so we looked at what predicted repeated suicide attempts and what predicted repeated cutting and anorexia. And we found that childhood sexual abuse was a major predictor of these repeated suicide attempts, as was to a lesser degree childhood uh, physical abuse, of self-cutting. And so childhood terror is a great predictor of all of these self-hurting behaviors. There's all sorts of trauma from drama that children see, type of shit that normally would call for therapy. But you know just how it go in our community. Keep that shit inside, it don't matter how hard it be. Fast forward, them kids is grown and they blowing trees and popping pills due to chronic anxiety. How do we intervene and use the brain's neuroplasticity to reset these particular pieces? Your experiences through the life cycle really shape your brain, your mind, your immune system, your immunological defenses. Uh, and so the whole your whole creature is very much determined by the experiences you have over the, your lifetime. The children in abusive households grow up knocking girlfriends out cold. That's called a cycle. Abuse becomes the abuser and that's just how life goes. So I've explored many different methods of dealing with trauma. Uh, I found that yoga has had the best reception. When you're a traumatized person, it feels like nothing will ever change. When you do yoga, you notice you can put yourself in some damn uncomfortable pose, and before too long, it's gonna be over. And you get that sense of time, which is a very important thing in helping to overcome trauma. You mentioned those war veterans who found meaning and resonance in what had previously been sensations of terror and emptiness. They could actually transform what was going on inside of them, right? And that that can't be done really without connection. It's not like, Oh, connection is a nice thing to do. No, that's who we are. Yeah. That's what we have brains for. Yeah. All these systems in the brain that we study as individual pieces, they all have to do with allowing us to be connected with each other. According to the CDC's Adverse Childhood Experience Study, 
also known as the ACE study, there is a direct link between childhood trauma and adult onset of chronic disease, as well as depression, suicide, being violent, and a victim of violence, and drug abuse. Adverse childhood experiences, which I'll be referring to as ACEs, were defined as kids who grew up in environments that included psychological, physical, or sexual abuse and or domestic violence, neglect, living with a substance abuser, someone who is mentally ill, suicidal, or ever sent to prison, Individuals who reported experiencing at least four of these ACEs were at increased risk of all health outcomes compared with individuals with no ACEs. And those that reported having six or more averaged a decrease in lifespan of 20 years when compared to those with no ACEs. You heard that right. Children who grow up in extremely harsh environments can die on average 20 years earlier than those who don't. The ACEs study has since become the largest and arguably one of the most important public health studies of our time. It's directly linked how toxic stress can damage the function and structure of kids developing brains and how that can lead to the adoption of health risk behaviors like drug and alcohol abuse, chronic smoking, mental illness and violence, and how these behaviors went on to cause early death via chronic diseases like heart disease, lunger liver disease, autoimmune diseases, cancer, and also suicide. This body of research brought me to our guest today, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. van der Kolk is one of the world's foremost experts on trauma, and he spent over three decades working with survivors. He's a member of the first neuroimaging team to investigate how trauma changes brain processes and he did the first research linking bipolar disorder and deliberate self-injury to trauma and neglect in early childhood. He did the first studies on the effects of SSRIs on PTSD and also some of the first studies on the benefits of yoga and EMDR. His New York Times best-selling book, The Body Keeps the Score, uses scientific advances to show how trauma literally reshapes both the body and brain and it completely transformed my understanding of human physiology. As always, I read this book in its entirety before interviewing Dr. Vanderkolk, and this podcast is hands down one of the most informative and truly revolutionary pieces we've ever created. If you guys have been enjoying this content, please rate it five stars on iTunes. It would mean the world to us. Remember that you can send us a message on Instagram or tag Medspiration in your stories. If you take a screenshot of this podcast and upload it into your stories, we'll share your story and start a conversation with you. So definitely feel free to reach out, guys. And a special thank you to our sponsor today, Pygmonic. I personally use Pygmonic in my studies for step one directly off of my iPhone. Their learning system powers thousands of mnemonic videos and quizzes that have been scientifically proven to increase long-term memory retention by up to 331%. And trust me, they're not lying. There was things on the USMLEs that I would have never remembered if I didn't remember the Pygmonic. It sounds crazy, but it's kind of like Cliff Notes meets Saturday morning cartoons for higher education. They help med students, NPs, PAs, PharmDs, RNs, LPNs, paramedics, and pre-med students rock their course exams, boards, and become more competent healthcare providers. 
Pygmonic has partnered with Medspiration to help make learning and memorizing easier than ever. So I know the CEO personally and we got you a pretty sweet deal here. You could check them out for free. If you sign up, you'll get instant access to a free video and quiz every day, no credit card required. You can use the promo code MEDSPIRATION for 20% off any premium subscription. Again guys, I would really recommend checking them out and trying out their resources. I promise you won't be disappointed. We'll have a link provided to you in the description below. And without further ado, let the Medspiration begin. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, welcome to the Medspiration podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have the honor of speaking with the Michael Jordan of trauma. He has led medicine and trauma research for over 40 years, and his life work has completely medspired the way that I view mental health and trauma, and I'm 100% positive that he'll do the same for you. Doc, how are you doing this morning? I'm a little bowled over by your introduction, but... <laughs> well, Doc, I had the honor of meeting you last week at your 30th annual Boston Trauma Conference, and somehow through the crowd, I was I was lucky enough to get you to sign my book. And uh-huh. this, this is your New York Times bestselling book, The Body Keeps Score, Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. And, you know, I want to acknowledge you before we start for all the contributions that you've made to medicine, and especially this book. Uh, one of my mentors, she had me read this book during our course on system sciences and neurobiology, and it transformed the way that I view trauma and mental health. Today, my intention is to dissect your masterpiece and to leave our audience with a greater understanding of the medical science of trauma and the best ways to heal. Great. Awesome. All right, so let's get into it. So I wanted to start with the ACEs study. So for our audience out there who may not know what the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study is, would you mind explaining the ACEs for us? Yeah, I'm going to tell you a fairly long story. I'm okay. going to tell you how it started because it's a very interesting beginning. Uh, there's a study done at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego by uh, Vincent Filetti, who's an internist who had a very successful weight loss program. And for the longest time, he thought, I've really found a secret to weight loss until a patient of his had lost something like over 100 pounds over some period of time. She came to see him. At the next follow-up, she had regained like 100 pounds or something. And he did not know that a person could gain that much weight in such a short period of time. And he asked her, what happened to you that you gained so much weight again? And she said, you know, after I left your office last time, um, you know, I'd become swelled and thin and attractive and people increasingly were staring at me and I came back to my office and a guy in my office said, hey, let's go for a hot date. You look so cool. And the moment he said that, she said, I started to eat because overweight is overlooked. And that rang a bell with Filetti. This goes like, oh, people may have these symptoms for a reason. Yeah. And so he, he very then saw one case after another of people who clearly needed to have their weight on. Security guards needed to be bulky. Uh, people had been sexually abused, oftentimes overweight in order to make themselves invisible. And that led gradually to a study of uh, giving 25,000 people at Kaiser Permanente 
um, this survey, very simple survey. When you were a kid, did anybody hit you? Did anybody, was anybody an alcoholic? Did you see your parents beat each other up? Did somebody do unwanted sexual things with you? And the results were stunning. The results turned out that one out of four Americans have been physically, seriously um, hit by their parents. One out of five Americans has been sexually molested by a person who is older than they are. At least one of eight Americans have witnessed physical violence between their parents, etc., etc. So, and so the incident of trauma or adverse childhood experiences, as they call it, is extremely high. And then they started to make the correlations. The correlations are important because in psychiatry, uh, the way we created the PTSD diagnosis was about memory and about a mental event and about a particular event. What the ACE study showed is the pervasive impact of adverse childhood experiences on people's behaviors, increased smoking, increased stuffing yourself with food, increased drug addiction, increased alcoholism, increased uh, in a whole variety of medical illnesses. And what the ACE study showed was something that many of us already suspected for a long time, but it's really very, very good, profound confirmation of it, that trauma really affects the whole human organism. And uh, this is not something that Filetti says about it, but when I read this data, what uh, I read is that people develop a very adverse relationship with their bodies. Mm. And if your body hasn't been respected, loved, cherished when you grow up, and people do things to you, and you see uh, people do things to each other's bodies, you get to despise your body or feel uncomfortable in your body, and you do things to try to blunt your feelings about your body or to stuff food into it or to starve yourself or to do something to change your relationship to your body. And so the way I read the ACE study, most of all, is you develop a very, if you have seen all these terrible things and you have experienced it, you develop an adverse relationship to yourself and your own internal world. So that's my summary of the ACE study. I'm sure that Dr. Filetti, who did the study, would give you a slightly different slant on that. I believe <laughs> anybody who has more than four adverse childhood experiences, I think their risk of dying comes to like 20 years earlier than the average individual who doesn't that's have correct. cases, right? That's and that's powerful. You know, that tells yeah, us... But, but what it really shows is the whole issue of... Um, of how your life circumstances really profoundly affect who you become. For example, there's the article in the Washington Post a few weeks ago that showed that the life expectancy now in Chevy Chase, which is a very nice suburb of Washington, D.C., where I actually have some friends, uh, average life expectancy is 92 years old. Wow. The average life expectancy in a neighborhood about six miles away that is largely poor and minority is something like 63 years old. Wow. Uh, and so you have these huge health disparities. And this really uh, brings home the core issue that if you live in a society with sharp inequality, with sharp decreased uh, opportunities for people, uh, you pay for it in so many different ways. Wow.
Like, give you an example again. There's a very interesting, fascinating, disturbing uh, difference there between the U.S. and Europe. Like in Europe, people read these data, and they said, okay, poverty leads to uh, illnesses and dysfunction and drug addiction, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So let's create a society where there is no poverty. Mm-hmm. And by and large, European countries have succeeded at it. So, like I recently came back from, I taught in Portugal, and Portugal is a poor country, but there are no more poor people in Portugal. So wow. everybody, so there's sort of a minimum plateau below which people are not allowed to uh, disappear. And so there's a, the schools are better, they're more humane um, for, I mean, across the board, not only for rich people, also for poor people. And so in the Netherlands, where I grew up, for example, people also took these issues very seriously. They're very much into social justice and stuff like that. And now the incarceration rate in the Netherlands is 68 per 100,000 people. The incarceration rate in the U.S. is over 900 per 100,000 people. So, so as a society, we pay a huge price for tolerating a lot of violence against children, a lot of insecurity uh, for children, a uh, lot of um, violence in the street, violence in the home, etc., etc. Uh, the other thing, for example, is that in all civilized countries, including Norway, Ireland, Canada, Singapore, Korea, Japan, Finland, France, uh, every country has uh, maternal and paternal benefits that if you have a baby, you mm-hmm. get paid to stay home for a certain length of time to take care of that baby. And then uh, these societies make early childcare readily available, high quality childcare for everybody. We don't have that in the US. We and don't. as a consequence, our children do much worse. Uh, so not if you're well off, not like a person like me, whose kids go to great schools and they do very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, what's being uh, somewhat surprisingly, the whole study of trauma has resulted in us really getting to understand the diff- uh, social conditions and how social conditions really have a profound impact on people's health and people's well-being. And that's not where we started off. We very much started off as what happens in the brain, what happens in the mind, what happens in mind development. We learned a lot about it, but that over time, uh, we learned more and more about it, that this express, gets expressed itself in politics and in our, the way we live together. That's so powerful how it all connects like that. Yeah. In the first chapter of your book, you actually talk about lessons from Vietnam veterans, and you mentioned that the 4th of July weekend – in 1978 was your right. first day as a psychiatrist at the Boston VA. And so can you tell us a little bit about Tom and what you learned? Well, it, it, indeed, it was, it, you know, the story I started the book with is a real story and a story that really, you know, we all have experiences like that from time to time where you go like, oh, wow. And then you never see the world the same way again. I hope you still have experiences like that yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so... You know, I'm a medical doctor, I get trained in, I had very good training in psychiatry, uh, 
and, and we learn to look at patients. We're involved in the research diagnostic criteria, which is the preamble to the DSM. Then I'm involved in DSM. And so we're very serious about making psychiatry into science. And we're beginning to think about pathways. We're thinking about uh, neuronal tracts. We're thinking about biology. And this guy comes to my office on the day after the 4th of July, and he's mm -hmm. disheveled and hungover, and he spent the night in his office. He's not gone home. And he then opens up to me and says how he has become a monster, how he cannot control himself. He comes becomes uncontrollably angry, and the 4th of July is a particularly tough holiday for him because the, the firecrackers and the lights of the trees uh, trigger mem memories of Vietnam, and he knew before the 4th of July that he shouldn't, wasn't fit for human consumption, and he stayed at home. And so, like all of us, uh, we can only hear what we what registers in our, our minds. So uh, people tell us stuff all the time and most of it we just block out or don't know what it means. But he mm -hmm. tells me about his nightmares. I happen to have done some studies in nightmares. I happen to be interested in nightmares. And so he says, I cannot sleep because I have these terrible nightmares. And I say, here's some pills and these pills will guarantee that your nightmares will go away. And as a doctor, you like to find the solutions. And you say, you like to say to the patient, take this and you'll be fine. Yeah. I know nothing at the time, but you know, as a young doctor, you have these grandiose notions that you know something. That's uh, me right now. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and so a guy comes back the week after and I say, so how were my pills? Empathy, an amazing doctor. And he says, actually, I didn't take your pills because uh, my nightmares about, are about my friends who died in Vietnam. And I need to have my nightmares because otherwise my friend's life, die, death will be in vain. And then he says, quote, I need to be a living memorial to my friends who died in Vietnam. And I get blown away. And I think, boy, you know, here have been, we have been studying dopamine, and we studied norepinephrine, and have been beginning to study what happens in the brain and the amygdala and all kind of other stuff. And this guy says, I need to have my nightmares out of my loyalty to other human beings. And that really just hits me hard, is that basically, as human beings, we are social people, and the core of our meaning in life, the core of our orientation in life, is our love and our friendships and our connections with other people, which trump everything else. Yeah. Uh, and that, of course, is the mention that systematically gets left out of medicine in particular. Uh, actually, it's become much worse. Every time I go to my doctor in Boston, I feel like I'm just a piece of machinery yeah. And nobody touches me. Nobody looks at me. Yeah. Uh, people call me Bessel, and I say actually, you know, actually, most people call me Doctor Vanderkoek, and I'd like you to, since you don't know me, I'd like have a little bit of sort of distance here, yeah. uh, and not have you patronize me. And I feel like I'm just a, a chicken in a Purdue chicken plant when I go to, my, uh, to doctors. Huh? Not every doctor I know, but but that's how. And so people don't see you, and people don't know you, yeah. and people are not interested in you. Uh, 
you know, and then it's interesting. I have a place in a very rural part of Vermont, and I'm very friendly with the health center, and I prefer to get my medical care there because people know me oh. and have known me over time, and they know their name and they know my name, and they know who we have seen each other over time, and there's a deep personal connection yeah. where we go beyond organ systems into looking at the whole entirety of people's lives. I love to work with those people up in Vermont uh, because they know their community. Mm-hmm. They know who the farmers are and the shopkeepers and the people who uh, make the maple syrup and stuff like that because it's a community. And that's very, certainly not there at all in the city. Yeah. You know, medicine is not part of a community. And medicine is, we are the greatest experts in the world. Come here and have your organ system cured. Yeah. That's so true. You know, I've had the same experience. I remember before medical school, I went to a doctor one time. He didn't look at me. He didn't say anything to me. He barely acknowledged me. He gave me a prescription uh, for what I needed. And I remember thinking, this guy doesn't know anything. He didn't even look at me. How's he going to know what to give me? And I never got the prescription filled. I went to med school and I actually found out he actually gave me the proper prescription. But just. Yeah, and from the patient perspective, just because I didn't feel seen, I didn't feel heard, yeah. I felt like, you know, I don't even want this medicine. It's important that we're mindful of that as, as healthcare providers. Cause, yeah, but uh, mindful more than that, that we need to be steeped in it. That absolutely. We need to be known, people need to be seen, we need to be curious about each other. Yeah. People need to know your name, you need to know a little bit about your life. Now, it's interesting. Uh, as a as a resident, I moonlit as a uh, in the psychopharm clinic, uh-huh. and and you know I saw people every six weeks or something for fifteen minutes. But I'd always write down if somebody say my daughter is getting married or my husband is getting laid off. Oh, that's so smart. I would go like write it down in the chart, and next week I would say so. Uh, how was your daughter's wedding or? How's that job going? So I'd have something personal in that. And as a result, I had very good relationships with people. Beautiful. And they trusted me. I'm, I'm going to start doing that. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll take that and I'll integrate that. That's so beautiful. Wow. So, well, I think that's a perfect transition into one of my favorite chapters in the book is uh, looking into the <laughs> the neuroscience revolution. So yeah. in this in this chapter, you mentioned being a member of the first neuroimaging team to investigate how trauma changes brain processes, right? And this was done at Harvard. And uh, I believe at the time you were doing a study on trauma and how it affects memory. And you asked eight of the participants to undergo brain scans and you ended up reading them a script that recreated their trauma. So So here's the study. So uh, my colleague Scott Vouch was just appointed to be the first neuroimaging one, first neuroimaging lab at, at Harvard, and he calls me up and says, do, "Let's do a study to see what happens in people's brains when they have a flashback." Mm-hmm. So the first challenge is, how do you create a flashback? Yeah, uh, and and that's it's interesting because most clinicians don't know that, but or sometimes intuitively know it. But but it's very clear is that if you keep talking in generalities. You, you can stay away from it. But if you focus on the details, like what did you see? What did it smell like? 
what struck you most when you looked at this person, what sounds that you hear, where you feel it in your body, and when you get to, into very specific episodic memories, the, those memories start coming back. So when you're traumatized, what you like to do is to get run away from these specific details as much as you can because it's so upsetting to remember them. Uh, mm -hmm. So you talk in generalities, but if you want to resolve the trauma, you need to go into the detail. But if you go into mu too much detail, you push people over the edge and you push them back into their trauma. So there's a whole complex maneuvering one needs to do to help resolve the trauma. You need to go there without plunging into it and coming engulfed in your trauma. And so, so in this particular experiment, I learned a lot from it actually. Uh, we actually push people over the edge into their trauma, so they feel like they're um, they feel like the, the rape is occurring again, or this horrible assault, or whatever. And then we put them in the scanner, and we see what happens in their brain. And what is striking is basically their whole left brain sort of doesn't do anything. So the left brain is the part of your brain that's logical, linear, uh, relational. Uh, creative, etc., etc. The big activation is in the right side of the brain, in the back of the brain, which is the fear center of the brain that we share with all animals. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we, so when we go back into our trauma, we, got, we become these terrified creatures. And most striking finding is that the left anterior prefrontal cortex which is the speech center of the brain, the, the, the center for self-awareness and language completely went offline. And so when people go into their trauma, and we know this, but you know, it's good to see it on brain scans, you see it confirmed, say, oh, of course, I see that all the time. And people become really upset. We all become like blubbering idiots. Mm -hmm. And we become inarticulate. And the more scared people are, the more inarticulate they become. And so that brought home the whole issue of, okay, here we ask people to tell them about their trauma, but the moment you get into your trauma, you become like a blubbering idiot because wow. you become this terrified creature who becomes inarticulate. And that, of course, happens in the doctor's office also, is that when you start moving close to uh, what really upsets people, they start shutting down, uh, they become nervous, frightened, upset, and there is no language, and people go say, "Oh, nothing happens," and because people could not talk about their rape or they could not talk about their molestation. What was mind blowing is that this was the first time it gave us visual representation that experiencing trauma can literally look like a stroke. For me, what that study meant is that people really cannot talk about their trauma, mm. and so you need to resolve it either by having people be calming people down, calming down people down so their left brain can come online or bypass that whole rational part of the brain that mainstream of psychology so we started to go after cbt to help people to be reasonable about their trauma and you know what they love to tell people i'm i always do a lot of cbt with my wife and point out how uh, her thoughts are irrational uh, treating people by saying that their thinking is irrational usually doesn't do all that much good for them. Uh, yep. And so you need to have uh, an internal experience that allows you to see the world differently, which is a hell of a lot more complicated than telling people how stupid they are. <laughs> right. Man, and I'm really curious, is this, 
Is this the same thing as a trigger? You know how people get triggered? Like say you do something and it actually reminds them of a memory of something that was traumatic and they their whole brain goes offline and they have this amygdala hijacking. Is that the same thing? Well, you see, I have to correct something you said, mm-hmm. even though I just said correction, but people Please. said it doesn't work. Like, but let me, let me, no, people don't remember something from the past. People have have an experience that is like the past. Oh. For example, if you have been molested as a kid and somebody touches you in a particular way, you start, suddenly may start feeling uh, agitated in danger and may become very aggressive. That doesn't, you won't know that you're reliving a piece of the past. Okay. You're reliving in the present something that is a somatic memory of the past, but not like, oh, if you touch me in a particular way, that reminds me of the time that pa pa pa. Mm-hmm. Your body goes there automatically, so it's not really a memory. Okay. Be enactment. Huh? Very wow. important difference. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's and that's what, what we saw in Vietnam veterans. You see it all the time, and it's a really fundamental, very widespread misunderstanding. Is that uh, this is about the past? No, people don't say uh, I beat up my girlfriend because my because when she does certain things that remind me of what my mom did to me or what my dad did. No, no. Your girlfriend does something, you get triggered, and you become aggressive. Or vice versa, your boyfriend. Women, women also get very aggressive mm-hmm. when they get triggered, of course. That's something in the book, it, it just rung a bell for me uh, at this point, because you're like, after the emotional storm passes, they may look for something or someone to blame. So it right. might be like, because you were late, I flipped out right, because right. you burned the potatoes. I'm right. really angry. And you said, but when we cool down, hopefully we can admit to our mistake. And that's where I was like, oh man, because a lot of times say this is in a relationship. If you can't right. take that accountability at the end, I believe that's where a lot of deep resentment can start happening in a relationship where if you don't own that mistake, like, Hey, I kind of flipped yeah. out. I'm sorry. That's where, you know, a, a relationship can really start going haywire due to this, that past. And they do all the time. Huh? Wow. I really, you know, it takes a really rare person to say, oh, I really blew, blew up and I'm sorry I did that. And it takes a fair amount of wisdom and oftentimes quite a few years of, uh, of really killing things and, and doing, have ruining your relationships before you go like, hmm, maybe this does have some, something to do with me. It's not just because she uh, burns potatoes. It mean, has something to do with the fact that I cannot just say, honey, I'm sorry, we all burn potatoes sometimes. Hey, come on. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. And that's that's great that you say it that way because, you know, I've been really trying to work on that myself where, uh, you know, trying to analyze where I could be wrong and just owning it because I, I've realized the more and more I try to own it, I actually discover more about myself and, and the things I need to improve on. And that ends up being a really positive thing in the long run. So It is, but that presupposes that you're curious about yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think the more traumatized you are, the harder it is to be curious about yourself. Amen. Because when you're really traumatized – your inner your your inner being is so hurt and so upset and so 
out of control um, that going inside can be very dangerous and very difficult for people. Wow. And so it's so much easier for us to blame people out there. Mm-hmm. And go like, no, when you talk to me in a certain way, I feel this feeling of sensation in my chest, and I feel like uh, nobody loves me, and it's not because you don't love me, because, but it's because I grew up with nobody loving me. And that takes a lot of reflection, and reflection is generally not a strong part of trauma as human beings. Wow. So what's, uh, how, how can you make that reflection uh, or cultivate that? What are some ways to cultivate it? That, that's where we as, as professionals come in. And that is that uh, I think our job is to exude compassion mm-hmm. and to say, uh, to really help people say, boy, uh, that must have been very upsetting to you. So next, I, I did want to discuss like why child abuse, molestation and domestic violence in particular, why they're so devastating to recover from. You actually wrote... Uh, something that was really important about how that affects the brain in a different way. So could you could you elaborate on that, please? This is also in the conference that you were last week, uh, yep. Marty Teicher uh, talked about it. And that's really one of the other things that we really come to understand in the last 30 years. And I wish that every medical school and every psychology program really teach that. I, they may already do it, I'm not sure. Uh, and that is that the brain is an organ that matures in the context of the environment in which it lives. Beautiful. And so at different stages of development, different parts of your brain come online. Huh? I don't know if you have kids, but in general, I think having kids is an enormously enlightening experience of how we get to be who we are because you have a little baby and the little baby knows nothing about nothing and it just has little impulses. And you see that little baby slowly learn how to maneuver itself in this social context. And that's what we have brains for. We have the purpose of our brain is to learn how to get along with other people. And we, our, our brain is a social brain. Mm-hmm. And so our brain gets formed by experience. So if you're an adored child and people around you are predictable and put you to bed at a reasonable hour and you don't wake up in the middle of the night hearing people screaming and beating each other up and you don't see people getting drunk you get an internal world of the world makes sense the world is predictable i am a good human being and i can make good things happen if you're a little kid and you get exposed to a lot of danger fear people shouting down about you uh, a child is said the the job of the brain of a little child is to know who they are and what effect they have on the world. And if you are exposed to a lot of danger, fear, and threat as a little baby, you your brain gets developed to like I cause terrible things to happen. Mm-hmm. And so you get a, a brain that organizes things egocentrically. Our, our, our president is a very good example of that. Oh, yeah, that's true. All about him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, I go, okay, I know people like that. But the only way to get, become like that is to have a childhood of extreme emotional deprivation where wow. you're always worried what people will think about you. Powerful, powerful. Uh, but if you, know, if you expect that people are loving to you, you grow up expecting that people will be loving to you. 
And that's how your brain gets formed. You know, and we have all these little brain abnormalities that you find in different stages of development have best articulated by Marty Teicher, who you heard speak last week. He's incredible. And, and yeah. All the different pieces that get online at different times and that organize the way that you see the world after that. What the job of psychiatry is, and we're nowhere there in terms of real having real science of that, how do we intervene and use the brain's neuroplasticity to reset these particular pieces? But as long as we have a, a really very defective diagnostic system in the DSM, which is nothing scientific about it, actually, yeah. we will not have a discipline that can specifically target what is going on here and what part of the brain can we help to sort of restructure itself so you see the world in a different way. And that's what psychiatry should be doing. Absolutely. So when we do talk about child abuse, molestation, domestic violence, I know mostly they're inflicted by people who are supposed to love you, right? right. And uh, I do recall, I think it was from the, the movie that you were a part of where you actually ended up saying, you know, when someone who's supposed to love you does something terrible to you, that, that can really impact the way that you develop trust going on in life. It will. Uh, like, you know, we're friendly with each other. So if I suddenly, something bad happens to you, you are supposed to say, oh, I'm sorry, is something going on with you? Yeah. You're supposed to pay attention to me and vice versa. If, if I see you suddenly clutch yourself, I go, hey, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> but if instead of getting a response of compassion and friendliness, people go like, uh, I, I'll have another drink or my next patient might go sit in the corridor, uh, you're left alone with your distress and that means that you're going to deal with people with suspicion and that you, uh, it becomes hard for you to collaborate with people, for example. Wow. You know, that reminds me of Dr. Beatrice Beebe. When right. she she did the in four months, you know, doing the micro analysis on children and seeing right. the attachment and attunement between mom and baby and right. how much that can actually go on to just impact the entire life of that child, right? So that's correct. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I did want to talk about the the Grant study. This was one of the fascinating studies yeah. that you've been yeah. a part of. Uh, could you could you share some information about Grant study? Is a study that was started nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty two. Uh, but Harvard got a lot of money. Uh, so my old colleague, teacher, uh, George Valiant, was in charge of it for many years. Uh, and now somebody else who's also a very good guy is in charge of it. But it's interesting that I think some of these guys are still alive. Again, showing that if you come from great privilege, your chance to live very l much longer than other people mm -hmm. is, is sharply increased. And what Valiant found, which is not what I'm focusing on, is that alcoholism is really the big uh, thing that undoes people. Drug addiction undoes people. And your relationship with the person, the primary relationship with your person. I think that's, I think that's a Valiant's main findings as he followed these people up every few years. They get interviewed uh, over many, many decades. Uh, but the part of it that was of particular interest to me, and I think uh, my relationship with George Valiant uh, may have inspired him to do that study, actually, 
I, I like to listen to think, uh, is that we started to talk about trauma in the late 1980s here in Boston. And so Valiant said, oh, it's interesting. I have a group of people now who were at Harvard at the beginning of the Second World War. Most of them probably served. So let's see what happens to these guys because many of them must have been traumatized. So they go back to the interviews in 1945 when the war is over and the, all these guys were interviewed and you can actually reconstruct from those old records who had PTSD or who didn't have PTSD. Of course, the diagnosis PTSD didn't exist, but mm -hmm. from all the records you can sort of construct who, who got traumatized by the war. And then in 1990, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, he interviews all these guys about their war experiences. And their findings are really interesting. What he finds is that the people who didn't have PTSD back in 1945, but who had been exposed to all kinds of terrible things, tell completely different stories in 50 years later than in 1945. Mm -hmm. So the normal thing is for people to distort their memories and to change them and to prettify them and to romanticize them and to bleach out the horror of the past. Okay. The traumatized people basically tell the same story 40 years later as they tell 1945. So the problem with trauma is you cannot change your memory. And so wow. all of us live our lives in a mindset that sort of prettifies things and pushes away unpleasant experiences and say it wasn't so bad and I survived and I love these people and too bad they died and but now I love my grandchildren so it's okay too and so we live in our own construct of the world mm -hmm. and what Valiant really in his study really confirms is something we see clinically all the time is that when you get traumatized you cannot change your memory and that old crap keeps coming back just the way it is. There's so all these debates about false memories, mm -hmm. that, that people must have made it up. It must not have been so bad. Actually, it's the opposite. Uh, you know, nobody really wants to think that their parents were bad people. You know, like, thinking that your parents were nasty, mean people, really means that you must be a nasty person yourself. So, so we all like to say nice things about our families and say, I come from a nice family, my mother was great, my dad was great. And you don't want to really say, no, my dad was a real bastard. <laughs> it doesn't look good. It doesn't make you look good. So, so people don't make up these stories uh, because it makes them look bad. Yep. And we're supposed to love our parents. And, uh, and so... This notion that people make up these false memories, accusing wonderful parents about terrible things. Uh, you know, I'm sure it happens. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we always stay skeptical. And, and some of the stories may not be true. But the overwhelming majority of what people tell you is true. And maybe possibly a little bit worse than what they tell you. Yeah. I think one of the most, the greatest things that I learned from your book and you speaking it's just that, you know, when a traumatic event happens, that the body keeps score. You can relive those things in the present moment. Now, that, that also changes the physiology of the human body, right? Could you give our audience a few examples of how that changes the physiology of the body? 
See, this has to do with that split that I talked about early in the book, and that is that we have our frontal lobes, our human brains. Now, human brains are symbolic brains, uh, storytelling brains, um, brains that go to medical school and you become a doctor and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and that's a wonderful part of your brain. And then below that is that animal brain that takes care of the housekeeping of your body, makes sure that you eat in time and evacuate in time and sleep and procreate yourself. And so you, and these, these parts of the brain are relatively separate from each other. Uh, so somebody may be a great scientist, a great musician, and be be a miserable human being. And people say, but you're so accomplished. Listen to the Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto you just played last night. It's the most beautiful thing I ever heard. And people go like, but deep inside, I feel like the most despicable human being in the world. And I feel terrible about myself. And, you know, so these parts, these things have... They have something to do with each other, but they're not one-on-one. -on -one. So, so, for example, that people talk about resiliency. Huh? Mm -hmm. And I'm very suspicious about the word resilience because I, um, you, know, you may be an extremely well-functioning person when I talk to you, but in your private life, I don't know what you do. Yeah. I don't know if you beat up your wife. You, know, like, you don't know that about me either. Huh? Uh, and so... On the surface, you may look fantastically interesting, resilient, open, but I don't know if all of you is like that. Yeah. Um, and so you have these different parts of the brain. And so the, the mind is quite capable of sometimes dissociating off the past. My, my poster child is J.K. Rowling, <laughs> <laughs> like who wrote the Harry Potter stories. She was a very abused person. And the, uh, she, the story is that she was still suicidal in her early 30s and barely made it alive. And then she uses her own trauma to do this amazing creative feat of writing Harry Potter stories, and which benefits millions and millions of people around the world. But I don't know if she's a happy person. Yeah, wow. She may be. I hope she is because I really admire her work. But the fact that you are extremely successful doesn't mean that deep down you carry that sense of pleasure about your success. And so, so you, you may go on and work very hard. And so one of the things in the, in the, in the grant study, uh, what, what Valiant found in his uh, Harvard graduates, is that the people who, uh, who had PTSD had like something like twice the number of listings of who is who in America than the people who didn't have PTSD. Oh. Ah, it's not interesting. So these guys who came into their trauma with a good education and good intelligence were able to, to go on and to organize themselves to become very successful in their business or in their profession, and they become workaholics. Yeah. They had terrible relationship with their kids, a terrible relationship with their wives, because they couldn't do intimacy. Ah. Uh. But they could become very successful on the surface. We all know people like that. We see that. We see that everywhere. Yeah, yeah that's so true. Wow. And so that animal brain has a life of its own, and that animal brain 
keeps interpreting the world as this is dangerous, this is fearful, uh, I'm going to get hurt, and that may not become conscious, but you may behave in a very unpleasant way to your kids and to your wife, mm-hmm. and and to yourself, because exactly. the signals are show up in your behavior outside, but they mm-hmm. also show up in your behavior towards yourself, so you feel uptight, and you feel frozen, and you feel angry in your body, and that is all mediated by hormonal systems and neural systems and neurotransmitters that are in the body. Uh, so what our research started to show and some more research, although it's surprising to me how little real good research has been done about it since the time, is that you have an increase in uh, autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean autoimmune diseases are caused by trauma, but if you have trauma, you're more likely to develop that. Increased cancer, uh, you know, increase a whole variety of illnesses, a lot of gastrointestinal problems, because that system still go- keeps going on, even though your social brain uh, may or may not have found some way of adjusting to it. Wow. You know, our, our philosophy at Medspiration is mind, body, spirit. You know, right. and it, it's so fascinating how... There's an infinite connection between mind, body, and spirit, you know, and this is like living proof on how our lifestyle and what happens to us completely impacts every system in the body. And the big issue, challenge in our society is uh, is how do people relate to each other? Mm-hmm. And um, overall, I would say that there's several countries in the world where people lead more relaxed, friendlier, connected lives than many of us do in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that the lifestyle in the U.S. may not be particularly, for many people, again, depends on all kinds of things. Lifestyle, by and large, in the U.S. may not really promote a lot of connection, interconnection, feelings like you're part of something, feelings belonging. And those are really the things that make our, our bodies feel safe and calm. You know, you mentioned those war veterans who found meaning and resonance and what had previously been sensations of terror and emptiness, they could actually transform what was going on inside of them, right? And that that can't be done really without connection. Right. Yeah, it's not like, oh, connection is a nice thing to do. No, that's who we are. Yeah. That's what we have brains for. Yeah. All these systems in the brain that we study as individual pieces, they're all have to do with allowing us to be connected with each other. Yeah. I, I read that yesterday. A part, of, a part of your book is like, our brain is mostly wired to fit in in a tribe. Right. right? And I remember exactly. reading that. It's like, wow, like we're, well, we're mammals, right? So we're very right. social creatures. Right. It's, it's, it's just the way it is. And then when you hear that in school systems, people are going to abolish play and mm-hmm. they're going to abolish gym and abolishing singing and theater, I go like, haven't you learned anything? Like, that is what you're supposed to do as a kid. And you know, I my parents sent me actually to a very nice school also, and they sent my kids to a nice school. And the main emphasis on these schools was on playing. Mm-hmm. And if you play, then 
but you have to learn like I did. I learned six languages. Wow. Uh, but if you have fun and you sing and make music, you say, okay, I'll learn French and I learn, I learn Spanish. Like, what? It's not not an issue. Yeah. If you enjoy being alive, uh, but if you start beating people up, said now you have to learn French. You know, yeah. you don't go to learn French. No. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's what you're saying about imagination. How important imagination really is in every aspect of life. You know, and I, I think if we create an environment of play and you know it reminds me of those gentlemen from baltimore if they if they have something to do with it they're going to make sure that you know they don't get rid of play in schools because those guys were incredible boy they they let's let's out them they're the holistic life foundation holistic life foundation yeah, and, yeah. and they really they nailed it and, and <laughs> yeah they did i'm absolutely delighted that uh they're as celebrated as they are Oh, and yeah. Because they should be a guiding light to all of us, yeah. 100%. I enjoy those meditations that they that had us do. Those were just incredible. Yeah. I've been meditating for six straight years now every day. And, you know, every day you learn something new, you know? Right. So it's just, And it shows. It pays off. Yeah, it uh, does. 20 minutes of meditation a day and life will be much better for you, you know? Like, I've noticed it, it just slows things down for me a little bit. And instead of being reactive to everything, I, I can right. kind of take a little bit of time to reflect right. before I do. And and yeah, it does. I think personally it's changed every aspect of every interaction I'll have. Right. So right. That's why we're, we're big on this podcast about, you know, Hey, if you can meditate, find your way because it's, it's, it'll benefit you. Well, see, but I think that's about it has to do with trauma again also. It has to do with the mirror neuron system. Huh? Yeah. If you start becoming mad, angry and irritated with me right now, my natural reaction would be to become angry and irritated with you also. And before too long, we escalate and we say, boy, that's what an asshole he is. Huh? Yeah. Uh, but if you meditate, you, you can say, huh, he's upset. And I'm not. Yeah. And you, so you dampen down that mirror neuron system. You see what you're going through. And you go like, huh, I wonder why he's getting so irritated. Because exactly. I'm feeling all calm and peaceful. And so what is going on with him? Is it something that I said? Or is it something that, is he okay? Or has he heard bad news? And so you get into a much more compassionate frame of mind where you don't take it personally, yeah. uh, but you got upset. It's not about me. It's about, huh, maybe it's about me, but I don't think so because I'd be pretty good to this person. <laughs> and you get, so when you meditate, you allow uh, that, that primitive threat system to calm itself down. And when you see people are upset, you don't feel upset by it. You go like, huh, that person having a hard time. But the, the only way to do that, you have to, calm that own stress of your own brain down. Mm -hmm. and of course, if as a medical doctor you don't sleep and you have seven minutes per patient, and I mean, what's happening in medicine, as you know, is horrendous. Yeah. You know, I was called in by the dean of my medical school recently. He said, our burnout rate, and he says, can you just work with them? We cannot change the system. Uh, and can you just help them to calm down? I say, actually, you should change the system. Yeah. 
<laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you advocating for us. <laughs> so I do have a question. How did the diagnosis of PTSD come to fruition in 1980? Some people, before I looked into it, they were like, oh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He, he's the, the man no, who... No, that's still true. Uh, yeah. A woman by the name of Sarah Haley was since been dead for many years, compiled case records okay. that were then used by other people. Now, I was, you know... Uh, it really came out of, out of veterans in the, in the Coachville VA and and I think Coachville, Pennsylvania, I think, uh, mm-hmm. or Ohio. Uh, they really started it, and there were some psychoanalysts in New York and uh, a bunch of young psychiatrists, and so the world sort of came together to create this. But mm-hmm. you know, I was, a, I was just beginning, and nobody who was there would have associated me with the diagnosis, but I made some contributions to it, yeah. Okay, incredible. I did want to talk about treatments. You published so much cool research on yoga, EMDR, and you know, we had the workshop on using psychedelics, MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin yeah. for treatment. Yeah. So what are some excellent treatments out there and what, what's some research that backs that? Number of points. One is this field is very young. It's only yeah. 30 years old. So I've been very active in it in these 30 years. I still am. And every few years, I learn something that's completely different. We come from a tradition that what helps people is talking and drugs. It turns out that drugs are not all that helpful for PTSD. And so, you know, make a big case in the book how we're so stuck in that psychiatrists are stuck in the drug culture that we prescribe billions of dollars worth of drugs that aren't really helping people. Uh, you know, and that's because we psychiatrists like to value their drug prescribing identity, but and say, oh, let's try another drug. Let's, no, no, there is no evidence that drugs really do it. Mm-hmm. And so we need to change. Yeah. And, and then people, let's find another drug. He said, eh, probably not. You know, that's probably a waste of money. Actually, the drug companies got out of the PTSD business because they realized that, uh, but psychiatry didn't get out of the drug business. Oh, man. And then it turned out that talking has its, it's very important to be able to tell the truth, but knowing why you're upset doesn't stop making you upset. So yep. understanding things it's very important, but it's not nearly enough. You need to really set that, reset that body. Yeah? And, uh, and I think most, many people are still frozen in this, let's talk and give drugs. And then EMDR comes in. For me, EMDR was a big uh, change maker because EMDR is a very strange technique. Like, yeah. okay, so, like I, I, I don't blame people for saying that's crazy. And you ask people to call up the memory of the trauma, they don't talk, and you ask them to move their eyes from side to side. Uh, as to do that. And then the memory goes down. And I was impressed with it enough with some of my patients um, uh, that we did a, the first and only National Institute of Mental Health funded EMDR study, and we had better results on EMDR than up to now any other treatment, actually. It's interesting. Wow. Uh, but because it's weird, uh, finger wiggling, people didn't go with it. 
Yeah. A lot of people did, but mainstream didn't. And for me, the EMDR was really a wake-up call. Like, this is weird. And it's so effective. Maybe weird stuff works. <laughs> people say, you know, I'm doing yoga with rape victims, and they're really helped by it. I go like, that's interesting. That's weird, too. <laughs> Standing on one foot and putting your butt in the air. Uh, let's do a yoga study. So we did the first NIH-funded yoga study for PTSD, and lo and behold, it turns out that the effect size of yoga for PTSD is higher than for any drug that has been studied. Uh. And so that's interesting. And even though we have published three articles on it, and other people have published articles on it, also, I have yet to see a psychopharm clinic turn into a yoga studio. Wow. It makes me wonder, do data really matter? People tell me, well, you know, you can test the EEG and you can shape people's brainwaves. And they go, that's weird too. Let's say the two. And then it turns out that neurofeedback is also can be extraordinarily effective for disorganized brains, uh, including PTSD. Uh, and so it's really one thing after another that um, we need to expand our curiosity. Mm -hmm. And what is alarming is that there is a lot of money to study correlations. Basically, every week I get another paper to review about a correlation between trauma and bowel disease, trauma and family violence, trauma. So people study these correlations and say, yeah, we know these correlations. We don't need more studies about these correlations. We need studies on effective treatments. Yeah. So alarming is that people make their, their academic careers out of writing these papers about correlation between one thing and another, but doesn't help anybody. It helps you to get tenure in your department. It doesn't help human beings to really have better lives. And so there's some real misallocation of resources there. Aside from neurofeedback, uh, my current research is I'm part of the psychedelic uh, groups, and we're studying psychedelics for for PTSD. And, you know, it makes perfect sense that psychedelics would work because when you're traumatized, you live in this very narrow reality of uh, everybody's out to get me or the world's a dangerous place or I'm no good or people are about to hurt me. And then you take these drugs that really open up your mind and you go like, huh, the world that my mind has created for myself is so small compared to what the world really is all about. And you really have these are truly mind-expanding drugs. Mm -hmm. It allows you to feel things very deeply, including your pain very deeply, and, and to really expand your consciousness. But I'm worried about with uh, these studies, because uh, it happened last time, is that we are doing MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah. And some of my colleagues do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. And that means you don't give people a damn drug and say, have a good time. We, we use these drugs in order for people to get the therapy so they can go deep inside and expand their consciousness. Recently, Johnson & Johnson, I think, released a drug where you can spout ketamine up your nose and people are being sent home with it. Yeah. It's a terrible idea. Very terrible. So worried because... People will have intense reactions. It will become a street drug. It will people use it for fun and games, and people will kill themselves. No, these drugs need to be very carefully controlled, to be yeah. given in very careful settings with a lot of mindfulness, and people need to take the time 
to process what happens in their minds and their bodies. These things should not be taken uh, uh, as doctors, our whole medical system, our for-profit medical system says, just take this drug, you'll earn a lot of money, and you feel you'll go home. No, that's the wrong way of doing things. Yep, I agree. Yeah. I did want to ask about the EMDR. Is it related to REM sleep somehow and processing? Our hunch is that it is. Okay. Um, Bob Stigold and I did a little preliminary study to test it out, and our results were not very good. It's just it's a very complicated question. And then recently, Ruth Lanius and Shireen Harazarian and I did a study on uh, in a brain scan study of EMDR, and we found uh, that EMDR really changes brain circuitry what connects with what, what gets activated. Uh, it's a very, very important thing. I still suspect that if anybody ever gets the money to really study this, that you'll find similarities with REM sleep. And it turns out, and it will turn out, as some of the research shows, that dreaming is an extraordinarily effective way of taking care of the residue of your day. Yeah. So, I think the brain has its natural way of dealing with uh, with miserable events. So you, you live in southern Illinois, right? So, so yeah. you know what the winter is like down there. And sometimes you probably go to bed at night in January, February, say like, I'm getting the hell out of here. I can't stand it. And you go to bed miserable and say, tomorrow I'm going to apply to go to Florida or something. Yeah. And you wake up next morning and you say, not a day of work. So something happens in your brain overnight, and I think that's your REM sleep that sort of helps this stuff to get processed and go like, it isn't so bad, and spring is only four months away. Yeah. Yeah. That's how your brain naturally takes care of these things. I said that maybe one of the core engines that keeps PTSD alive is that your dreams are not allowed to do a natural function. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. You, know, you spoke about paradigms in such a beautiful way. You were saying back in the day, enlightenment aberrations and behavior were ascribed to God, sin, magic, witches, and evil spirits. And then here comes the 19th century scientists in France and Germany. They begin right. investigating behavior as an adaptation to the complexities of life, causing right. this new paradigm where it's like anger, lust, pride, greed, sloth. Right. And then I guess my question to you is, is there a newer paradigm where we're kind of looking at childhood neurodevelopment and how that can lead to different behaviors? Is that kind of the new paradigm we're headed towards? Or what do you think? That's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. But yeah, I think the whole issue of the the the, the child is the parent of the man mm-hmm. is the developmental perspective is a truly – it's not – you know – these are evolutionary things, but I, I think that the big change that certainly I have undergone also is to really see ourselves from a developmental point of view. Yes. And that your experiences through the life cycle really shape your brain, your mind, your immune system, your immunological defenses. Uh, and so the whole your whole creature is very much determined by the experiences you have over your lifetime, yeah. 
Yeah, before we transition into the last portion of our segment here, I wanted to read something from your book. You talked about the brain disease model and how it overlooks four fundamental truths. And these resonated with me so deeply. Number one, our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another. Number two, language gives us the power to change ourselves and others by communicating our experiences helping us to define what we know and finding a common sense of meaning. Number three, we have the ability to regulate our own physiology, including some of the so-called involuntary functions of the body and brain through basic activities as breathing, moving, and touching. And lastly, number four, we can change our social conditions to create environments in which our children and adults can feel safe and where they can thrive. I couldn't have said it any better. (laughs) That's so good. That's (laughs) awesome. So now we're going to move to the last portion of our podcast, which is also the most popular portion of our podcast. We have our audience submit questions through our Instagram. And we had a lot of questions submitted to you. Our team breaks them down. So we're going to get straight into that. Question number one was by Doc Spired. She asks, you said in 2017, you wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about why we should not go to war with Iraq. And soon after that, we went to war with Iraq. This is when you stopped being optimistic about the nature of the human species. And the question is, what motivates you to do this work now that you've come to this understanding of human nature? <laughs> Pretty good but question. I, I submitted that op-ed. It was never published, actually. Oh, wow. Uh, and what I said in the op-ed was actually like... It sounds like our political system have decided to go to war. And what I said is that, you know, that's a decision that you make and that I can't say anything about. But what I can say to you as a scientist in the area of trauma, that the following will happen. That there will be more people dying after they come home from suicide than will die in battle because that happens after every war. And there will be more people uh, who come home that about somewhere between over 50% of people will become alcoholic or drug addicts because it happens after every war. And that most of these people will fail to have successful families without violence because it happens after every war. So we learn something about what the the price that we pay for these things. And of course, uh, and then people go like, isn't it amazing that all these people try to kill themselves? They were saying, no, it's not amazing. Wow. There's nothing amazing about it if you actually have a brain in your head and you mm-hmm. bother to, to know something about it. Uh, uh, so it's only if you're ignorant and don't bother to learn anything that you're surprised by this stuff. You know, Let's say all of us or most of us or many of us like to leave, leave this world a better place than we found it in. Mm-hmm. You know, that's also part of our instinct. So I'm just following my instinct to try to. Wow. To, you know, but I'm sure you have the same motivation. You want to make the world a better place also. Like, Absolutely. It keeps us going. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So question number two, Kiam is BW asks, is mentally running away from trauma a true escape? If not, why do humans do it so naturally? There's some research that shows that depressed people see the world more realistically than non-depressed people. 
Wow. That, that we are an optimistic species. That's, that's what made human beings the very successful species who we are. Mm-hmm. Is to, and so we pay a price for ignoring trauma, particularly in the US, I think, and China, actually, are the two places where people seem to be most in denial about trauma. And we pay a price for it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it is healthy to go on with your life. That's so true. So, Dr. Bessel, question number three by Shut Up, I'm Dancing. She asks, what are your thoughts on brain spotting and whether it should be included in all therapies? Oh, well, um, I hear good things about brain spotting. It's a variant of EMDR. Oh. And being a scientist, I, I'm always in favor of people sort of sticking with a, a core method and really figuring out what's going on here. And if you develop a new technique like brain spotting, then I think it becomes very important to plow your income back into the research that's necessary to prove how good it is. I think, you know, we cannot live in a testimonial society. Yeah. And if you think that your method is very good, you need to really do the research to show how good it is and that it's better than other things. Uh, but I hear lots of people say very good things about brain spotting. Um, I don't do it myself. I'm very happy for to use EMDR and works quite well in my hands But uh, and, and many other things. Uh, but uh, it sounds like a good thing and now do the research to prove how good it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. The question number four by Tups112. How do I deal with my crippling anxiety? Well, that's a, that's a very global question. How, how do we deal with uh, world hunger? Like, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know if, you, if you're crippling anxiety, you may want to read the book yeah. and see what parts of your anxiety are, uh, are relevant to you. And so I have uh, something like seven chapters on treatment. Mm-hmm. Read the treatment chapters and say, this makes sense to me, and that doesn't make sense to me. And let me explore what what of this applies to me. So, uh, so explore and see what's, what your anxiety is about, what you experience, and then look at the treatment chapters and see which particular treatment might might you might appeal to you. I agree. Do you ever get anxious? If so, what do you do when you get anxious? Yeah, I don't get anxious. You know, you know, when you grow older, you become less anxious. And, um, you know, and I've done a lot of yoga, do a lot of meditation. Uh, I ride my bicycle a lot. I hug my wife a lot. Beautiful. She hugs me a lot. Uh, I mean... (laughs) Having a loving relationship <laughs> makes a lot of difference in the world. Yeah, yeah. Amen to that. Yeah. I agree. So Dr. Bessel, last question. We actually yeah. ask every single individual who's been on this podcast this question. What is your definition of medspiration? <laughs> I think that it's really about intense curiosity. Huh? One of the things that, you know, so I'm an old guy. And old guys always say that the world is becoming is going to hell in the handbasket. I mean, people have done that for 10,000 years. So I'm always careful to be one of these people. But 
the way I was trained in medicine uh, was to be intensely curious about your patients yeah. and not prematurely come up with answers. And my joy in medicine and my joy in psychiatry was always about what the hell is going on with this person. And what I see happening is more and more people specializing in one tiny little organ and mm-hmm. say, okay, this is outside of my area of expertise. Why don't you go to somebody else? And I am really just astounded that there are no people who really know internal medicine so well that they can say, hmm, boy, the kidney is that and the gallbladder is doing that and you have this funny thyroid thing. How does this all fit together? Yeah. And uh, so the world of William Osler, in whose tradition I was very much trained, is a, is a world of intense curiosity. Mm-hmm. And for me, medicine psychiatry are based on uh, on being Sherlock Holmes. Like, what yeah. is going on here and what can we do about it? And I'm afraid that that's not a prevailing spirit of medicine today. Mm-hmm. As it has become a for-profit operation. Mm-hmm. And the sooner we get away from this for-profit stuff, the better we are, because then we can rechannel our energy from who's making the most money uh, and to really move our energy into what is this about and to be to be very curious about uh, how humans function and what goes on with people. Well, I'm so grateful because we, like I was telling you in person, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, and I believe that as the future of medicine, it's going to be important that if I can do anything to to make that a reality, I definitely will. And we have teams. So, you know, there is hope. And like you were saying, we do have this internal hope of making, leaving the world a better place than it yeah. was. So it I, I, I experienced you guys that way when you came to my conference. Like you guys were some little, sort of little lights spot move with your conference really great to see that actually. oh man yeah. thank you so much thank you well we appreciate having you on the podcast dr vanderkoll there you have it folks i hope you guys left this one feeling med-spired if you learned something new or if you genuinely enjoyed this episode please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate it five stars medspiration is a 501c3 nonprofit charity organization the more you help us grow the more people we're able to help For example, our newest sponsorship with Pygmonic is currently helping us fund our ongoing work at a small children's school in Cambodia. If you're currently a future healthcare professional and are studying tons, don't forget to check out Pygmonic's learning tools for free. You can use the discount code MEDSPIRATION for 20% off any membership. Please visit pygmonic.com for more. We'll be sure to leave a link in the description below. Let's make a commitment together, guys, and attempt to live a healthier lifestyle, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And as always, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and do something med-spiring.